welcome to Misinformation, the trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi. I'm back in the land of the living. You're back. I took, uh, I got married and it was a beautiful wedding. We had a lot of fun. You had a lot of fun. Your slip kept falling down. Okay. <laughs> Can't wait to see the photos of that. <laughs> no, I think I think Ray was pretty good about not okay. taking photos of your slip <laughs> falling out from behind your dress. I was dress. dancing so no, hard. I, no, you were really dancing really hard. It was fun. Because I had comfortable shoes on. Exactly. So did I. Changed right into those comfortable mm-hmm. shoes right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Good food. Great cake. We've got seven and a half pounds of cake in our fridge right now. <laughs> it's so much freaking cake. We're not going to be able oh, to we'll eat take it all. some. You want some cake? Yeah, we'll take Great. some cake. Our cake was carrot cake, no nuts, no raisins. With a caramel frosting. Oh, wow. It was. I didn't have that one. You didn't have that one? No. Oh, which one did you have? Chocolate something. The chocolate cinnamon? I guess. Yeah, it was a chocolate cinnamon. Was it good? I didn't get to taste it. That's the only one I tried. Oh, okay. I mean, it was chocolate. I was drinking a lot of wine. Oh, okay. My taste buds were. That's fine. <laughs> That's <wrecked>. fine. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I kept drinking the same glass of wine all night, so I really ah. wasn't. But everybody else was toasted. Great. Yeah, so it was very fun. Uh, then Steve and I went to Niagara on the Lake for a couple of days and I ate, can I tell you, I ate pasta every night for dinner. I am made of spaghetti right now. <laughs> I, this is, that's the dream. I took a bath every night and drank wine in the bath. It was like, why, why don't I, why don't I live like this every day? Because I'd be, sure. seven, I'd be 700 pounds of spaghetti. That's what I would be anyway, but I'm back feeling She's good. back. Thank strong. you for all of the kind wishes. And yeah, thank you, everybody. And that was so kind. I got so many great um, tweets about the p- pictures that we posted uh, of my crazy wedding dress and my extra crazy uh, necklace um, and my paper flower. So uh, thank you to everybody. I know I didn't get a chance to like respond to everyone because um, I was on my honeymoon and also eating pasta at the time. <laughs> so, uh, but thank you to everybody. So I'm back, baby, and I'm back, back. in it. I'm back in it. Back. Just in time. If you're listening to this on Tuesday morning. Yes. Remember, go vote today. Definitely. Please go vote. 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 Vote in the election. <laughs> yes. Definitely vote. Um, if you're listening to it now, this is your re- reminder. Yes. Uh, if you're listening to it and you haven't voted yet, stop this right now. Go vote. We'll wait. We'll be here. Yo, we'll be here. And then come back and listen to the rest of this. So please vote. <laughs> uh, so my topic today is based on a previous topic. Well, actually, it was a previous <laughs> spun-off. Yeah, you know, spun-off. It's a spin-off. Yeah. And I said, ooh, I should, we should do a topic on this. And you said, mm. And I said, I'll do a topic on this. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, my topic today is entitled The Spruce Recluse, Howard Hughes. All aboard! <laughs> I, 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 Ugh. Thank you. You're so welcome. Okay. <laughs> so this is, so Howard Hughes, what a nutter. Can we talk? Ugh. I mean, really. Uh, but it's going to be a little long because he did a lot of cool stuff. Hey. But it's all interesting. We're I, here. Mi promisa. People like it when we talk at them, apparently. <laughs> Which is so, I still can't get over it. It's so weird. Okay. The birthplace of Howard Hughes is recorded as either Humble or Houston, Texas. No one knows. No, where. no one knows. We're going to say to Houston, Lacks Texas. Lacks record keeping. Lacks record keeping. And that's why every state. Archivists are town, important. Archivists are important. Uh, <laughs> the date also remains uncertain due to uh, variable sources. Ooh. And conflicting uh, like 
memories. So he personally claimed that his birthday was on Christmas Eve. Um, but and a 1941 affidavit birth certificate of Hughes that was signed by his aunts uh, said he was born on December 24th, 1905. Okay, in Harris County, Texas. However, his certificate of baptism recorded as uh, recorded on October 7th, 1906, in the parish register of St. John's Episcopal Church, listed his birth as September 24th, 1905, hmm. without any reference to the place of birth. So, oh boy, he was born sometime he was born in the fall, fall slash winter. Of 1905. 1905. Yes. He was the son of Aline Stone Gano and Howard R. Hughes Sr., who was a successful inventor and businessman from Missouri. Uh, he was Missouri. a descendant. Huh? Missouri. Oh, sorry. Missouri. Apologies to all of our Missouri listeners. <laughs> uh, he was a descendant of John Gano, who was the minister who baptized George Washington. <gasps> yeah. That's great. Yeah. So... Um, Hughes's father had patented the two-cone roller bit, which allowed rotary drilling for petroleum in previously inaccessible places. <gasps> the two-cone? The two-cone. Oh. As you can imagine, the two-cone bit is much better than the one-cone bit. Twice as good. Twice as good. So Sorry. He, I, it's okay. I don't... <laughs> it's fine. I'm not going to heckle two you cones, all night. Two cones. No, please. Heckle me all you want. I love it. I thrive on it. Uh... So the senior Hughes made the shrewd and lucrative decision to commercialize the invention by leasing the bits instead of selling them. Uh, he obtained several early patents and founded the Hughes Tool Company in 1909. And Hughes' uncle was the famed novelist, screenwriter, and film director, Rupert Hughes. Rupert Hughes. So as a young, at a young age, Hughes demonstrated an interest in science and technology, but he was very bad at school. Oh. He was just bad at it. He was also a lonely child. He had one friend, and that was it. Uh, he had great engineering aptitude, and he built Houston's first wireless radio transmitter at age 11. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Uh, he went on to become one of the first licensed ham radio operators in Houston. And at 12, he was photographed in the local newspaper, identified as being the first boy in Houston to have a motorized bicycle, oh, which he had built from parts from his father's steam engine. Wow. Yeah. So the story was his mother had refused to allow him a motorcycle because he was 12. Sure. So he just built his own. He was like, F you, mom. I'm building my own motorcycle. <laughs> Uh, so, and he also took his first flying lesson at 14. Whoa. So he was, um, while not great at school, he was, um, a precocious child, we yes. shall say. Um, he later attended math and aeronautical engineering courses at Caltech and his mother, Eileen died in March, 1922 from complications of an ectopic pregnancy. Oh, Honest to God. That's like, rough. Like, it's amazing we survived as a species because mm-hmm. pregnancy is a shitty thing. Mm-hmm. Like we should, all of us should have died thousands of years ago. Anyway. <laughs> Only the strong survive. Only the strong, only the strong survive. Uh, Howard Hughes Sr. died of a heart attack in 1924. So within two (sighs) years, both of his parents are dead. So their deaths apparently inspired Hughes to include the creation of a medical research laboratory in the will that he signed in 1925 at age 19, which we will talk about in a little bit. Um, Howard Sr.'s will had not been updated since Aline's death, and uh, Howard Jr. inherited 75% of the family fortune, the rest being left to various relatives. Hmm. On his 19th birthday... Hughes was declared an emancipated minor. He then bought out his relatives from the Hughes Tool Company, left others in charge of the business, and lived off the profits. Well, uh, Hughes withdrew from Rice University shortly after his father's death because he was like, I got money now. I don't need to go to college. <laughs> so on June 1st, 1925, he married Ella Botts Rice, daughter of David Rice and Martha Lewis Lawson Botts of Houston, and they moved to Los Angeles where he hoped to make a name for himself as a filmmaker. Ah, yes. So he started his movie career as a producer. Obviously, he had nothing but money. Those people saw him coming. Oh, he, was yeah. 19, he was 20 years old. Mm-hmm. He was like, I got money and I like films. And they were like, come over here, little boy. 
Um, so he started as a producer on the 1926 film called Swell Hogan. Swell Hogan. Like Swell Hogan. Like Swell Hogan. Have you heard of it? No, you haven't because it turned out to be so terrible it never made it to theaters. Uh, however, he soon had a box office success with 1927's Two Arabian Nights, which earned him an Academy Award for Best Comedy Direction. Oh, wow. They weren't making as many movies back then. So I don't think that Best Comedy Direction in 1927 had a lot of... There were only like four things to choose from. Yeah, maybe four. One of them was The Mummy. (laughs) Exactly. And they were like, that's kind of funny, right? So he went on to direct his first film called Hell's Angels uh, when the first initial two directors on the project quit after clashing with Hughes, the young Texas millionaire. In his quest to make the aerial scenes in Hell's Angels an action adventure about World War I pilots as realistic as possible, Hughes amassed a huge fleet of vintage planes and hired scores of pilots and mechanics. He was like, I want this to be real, so I'm paying for all of this. Uh, Unfortunately, three pilots died (gasps) during production, and Hughes himself crashed a plane. Oh, Uh, Hell's Angels initially was shot as a silent film, but following the fall 1927 release of The Jazz Singer, which was the first feature-length movie with synchronized dialogue, Hughes decided to reshoot with sound. He was like, we're scrapping it. He recast the lead actress because she had an annoying voice, much like in Singing in the Rain, (laughs) Uh, and just like basically reshot everything with dialogue. Mm Mm-hmm. Which was like exorbitantly expensive, and he he spent nearly four million dollars to produce Hell's Angels. This is four million dollars in nineteen twenty-seven. Oh my gosh! Uh, it debuted in nineteen thirty and was one of the most expensive films of its time. It was also a hit, and it put Hughes on the map in Hollywood. He later produced additional films, but his only other directorial effort was nineteen forty-three's The Outlaw, which was a western featuring Jane Russell. Uh, while he was directing The Outlaw, here's a little, uh, a little tidbit Howard. of info. Hughes became fixated on a small flaw in one of Jane Russell's blouses, claiming that the fabric had bunched up along a seam and gave the appearance of two nipples on each breast. Oh, wrote, I know what he's talking about. Oh, yeah. No, that happens. That happens to me all they the freaking time. They put a dart time. in a very unflattering place. Oh, I don't know why. Things. Princess seams. What why? the what? It's ridiculous. <laughs> he wrote a detailed memorandum to the crew on how to fix the problem. Oh. Uh, Richard Fleischer, who directed His Kind of Woman with Hughes as an executive producer, wrote at length in his autobiography about the difficulty of dealing with the tycoon. In his book, Just Tell Me When to Cry, Fleischer <laughs> explained that Hughes was fixated on trivial details and was alternately indecisive and obstinate. Oh. He also revealed that Hughes' unpredictable mood swings made him wonder if the film would ever be completed. <laughs> but in the end, it was a huge hit, as a matter of fact. And um, Paul Mooney, who was cast in the title role, became a major star. Um, most of the attention was focused on newcomer Jane Russell, however, um, whom Hughes cast as a love interest, and he also outfitted her in highly provocative clothing, the two-nipple shirt notwithstanding. <laughs> um, he actually designed a special brassiere to accentuate her assets, Oh, though Jane Russell was like, no thanks, it, this thing is a torture device. Howard I never Hughes, wore it. lingerie designer. Yeah. Howard Hughes, <laughs> who knew? Um, he also produced Scarface, which was based on the life of Al Capone. Um, Wait, like that, not the Al Pacino Scarface. The No, not the Al Pacino Scarface, <laughs> but the actually Scarface, the Al Pacino Scarface is a remake of uh, the 1932 Scarface, okay. which I never, I never realized. Wow. Um, the shoot was marred by frequent arguments between Hughes and director Howard Hawks. Um, and in addition, its release was delayed by censors at the Hayes office who oh, yeah. demanded various changes to the violent and brutal film. But that also became a hit. Mm-hmm. Um, so in his 1971 book, which was called Howard Colin, the amazing Mr. Hughes, uh, Dietrich said that Hughes genuinely liked and respected Jane Russell, but never sought romantic involvement with her. 
Uh, according to Russell's autobiography, however, Hughes once tried to bed her after a party. Mm. Russell, who was married at the time, refused him, and Hughes promised it would never happen again. The two maintained a professional and private friendship for many years after that. Isn't that nice? Hmm. I mean, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know. It could have been worse. It, I guess it could have been worse. <laughs> that she was, I mean, he didn't try it again, I guess. So, you know, beggars can't be choosers, I guess, in the, in the 20s. <laughs> anyway. Uh, in 1929, Hughes' wife, Ella, returned to Houston and filed for divorce. She was like, that's enough. Ugh. Hughes dated many famous women, including Billy Dove, Betty Davis, Ava Gardner, Olivia de Havilland, Catherine Hepburn. Oh, my gosh. Hetty Lamar. Ginger Rogers, Janet Lee, Rita Hayworth, Mamie Van Doren, and Jean Tierney. Did he really date all of them? He really did date all of them. Not like, not like, he told people he dated them? <laughs> no, he did. He dated all of them. In fact, his relationship with Catherine Hepburn kind of put him on the map. Wow. Uh, outside of Hollywood. Uh, apparently, he also proposed to Joan Fontaine several times, according to our autobiography, No Bed of Roses. Uh, Jean Harlow accompanied him to the premiere of Hell's Angels. She was in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but Noah Dietrich, his biographer, wrote many years later that the relationship was strictly professional as Hughes apparently personally disliked Harlow. <laughs> um, however, Hughes remained good friends with uh, Jean Tierney, who, after his failed attempts to seduce her, was quoted as saying, I don't think Howard could love anything that didn't have a motor in it. Oh, <laughs> Uh, later, when Tierney's daughter Daria was born deaf and blind and with severe learning disabilities because of Tierney's being exposed to rubella during her pregnancy, <gasps> oh. Hughes saw to it that Daria received the best medical care and paid all expenses. Well, that's nice. Which is very kind. So, during the 1930s, Hughes began to seriously pursue his passion for flying, establishing Hughes Aircraft Company in 1932. It actually eventually became a major aerospace and defense contractor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he set a series of aviation records. In 1935, he broke the record for flying a plane over land, traveling 352 miles per hour near Santa Ana, California. Whoa. Two years later, he set a record for transcontinental U.S. speed, journeying from Burbank, California to Newark, New Jersey in seven hours, 28 minutes, and 25 seconds. Pretty good. Yeah, it's not bad. I, You know, that's not a bad yeah. flight. Seven hours? Okay. In, you know, 1935? On July 10th, 1938, Hughes and a four-man crew took off from Brooklyn's Floyd Bennett Field on an around-the-world flight. Mm. After dipping his Lockheed Super Electra's wings over the old Saybrook, Connecticut home of his girlfriend, Catherine Hepburn, mm. Hughes made refueling stops in Paris, Moscow, Omsk, and Yatutsk, which are both in Siberia, Fairbanks, and Minneapolis before landing back in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Omsk. Omsk. And Yatutsk. Uh, that's how you have to say it, because you're so cold. <laughs> You got to get it out quick. Your teeth are just, You're just chattering. So there in Brooklyn, thousands of spectators greeted Hughes, who had set a new record for circumnavigating the globe with a time of three days, 19 hours, and 17 minutes. Do we, we don't do this anymore. No, because we live in a global society. <laughs> Everything, like if I need to see Malaysia, I could just like bloop, 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 and bring up right like a live feed of Malaysia. So it's always so fascinating to me whenever like these things happen in the night in the 20th century, and it was like. Two million people crowded the streets, and we had a yeah. ticker tape parade. Of course, everybody they did. waved at everybody in the like. Well, yeah, I mean, they didn't have TV. Yeah, you I know? guess the closest thing is like a big sporting event. Yes, like, like winning the Super Bowl or winning the Stanley Cup or something. Yeah. Like you get a parade in your town. That's yeah, like exactly. the closest thing, I guess. But I yeah. can't think of anything that's like for a personal accomplishment. Yeah. Mm, yeah. No. Not not anything recently. We should bring it back. We should. Well, what's there left to do? <laughs> Space elevator. Probably space elevator, space right? Space elevator. Okay. I guess I mean, that's a lot of people thing. paid attention when um, Elon Musk sent his car into space. Okay. Right. 
feel like we could do something with Antarctica, maybe, maybe. With what? Antarctica. Ooh, that's good. Maybe Antarctica. Let's table that. I like that idea. I want okay. that. I want that big parade. <laughs> we gotta get that big parade. <laughs> Misinformation ticker tape parade. Uh, so Hughes was hailed as a hero and honored with the ticker tape parade in New York City, uh, and celebrations around the country. So he got to travel, and like everybody was like, "Howard Hughes, we love you!" Like this was his shit. Um, so f- the following year. Hughes bought a share of Transworld Airlines, or TWA, mm-hmm. and he eventually required 78% of its stock. So wow. he was like a major mm-hmm. owner. Okay. On, this is kind of awful. On July, <laughs> on July 11, 1936, Hughes struck and killed a pedestrian named Gabriel S. Meyer with his car at the corner of 3rd Street and Lorraine in Los Angeles. After the crash, Hughes was taken to the hospital and certified as sober, but an attending doctor made a note that Hughes had been drinking. A witness to the crash told police that Hughes was driving erratically and too fast and that Meyer had been standing in the safety zone of a streetcar stop. Hughes was booked on suspicion of negligent homicide and held overnight in jail until his attorney, Neil S. McCarthy, obtained a writ of habeas corpus for his release pending a coroner's inquest. By the time of the coroner's inquiry, however, the witness had changed his story and claimed that Myers had moved directly in front of Hughes's car. Nancy Watts, who was in the car with Hughes at the time of the crash, corroborated this version of the story. On July 16, 1936, Hughes was held blameless by a coroner's jury at the inquest into Mayer's death. Wow. Hughes told reporters outside the inquiry, quote, I was driving slowly and a man stepped out of the darkness in front of me. So that was like, that was a little bit of like a rich guy gets off. Right. Because he's rich. So, in the spring of 1943, Hughes spent nearly a month in Las Vegas test flying his Sikorsky S-43 amphibian aircraft, practicing touch-and-go landings on Lake Mead in preparation for flying his Spruce Goose, which I will mention in a bit. Uh, The weather conditions at the lake during the day were ideal, and he enjoyed Las Vegas at night. On May 17, 1943, Hughes flew the Sikorsky from California, carrying two CAA aviation inspectors, two of his employees, and actress Ava Gardner, who he was dating at the Mm -hmm. time. Hughes dropped Gardner off in Las Vegas and proceeded to Lake Mead to conduct qualifying tests in the S-43. The tight flush did not go well. The Sikorsky crashed into Lake Mead, killing CAA <gasps> inspector Ciso Klein and Hughes' employee, Richard Felt. Oh. Hughes suffered a severe gash at the top of his head when he hit the upper control panel and had to be rescued by one of the others on board. Uh, Hughes paid divers $100,000 to raise the aircraft and later spent more than $500,000 restoring it. $100,000 to get Just it out to of get the it lake? Out of lake Mead. Wow. Yep. Um, Hughes was involved in another near-fatal aircraft accident on July 7th, 1946, while performing the first flight of the prototype U.S. Army Air Force's reconnaissance aircraft, the XF-11, near Hughes' airfield at Culver City, California. An oil leak caused the aircraft to lose altitude rapidly. Hughes attempted to save the aircraft by landing it at the Los Angeles Country Club golf course, but just seconds before reaching the course, the XF-11 started to drop dramatically and crashed into the Beverly Hills neighborhood surrounding the country club. (gasps) When the XF-11 finally came to a halt after destroying three houses, the (gasps) fuel tanks exploded, setting fire to the aircraft and a nearby home. Hughes managed to pull himself out of the flaming wreckage, but lay beside the aircraft until he was rescued by Marine Master Sergeant William L. Durkin, who happened to be in the area visiting friends. Hughes sustained significant injuries in the crash, including a crushed collarbone, multiple cracked ribs, crushed chest with collapsed left lung, shifting his heart to the right side of the chest cavity and numerous third degree burns. His it heart moved. moved his heart. It moved it. The, the, the one thing you shouldn't move. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Should move your brain. One yeah. should move your heart. Oh my gosh. I, it, okay. Go At ahead. this point, 
Did anybody that worked for him say, you know what, Howie? Why don't we take a break why from airplanes? Break? No, you know why? He had too much money. Ugh. Just too much friggin' money. Because you know what? Then you just get fired and you'd be replaced by someone else that he's paying I, yes, nothing. Yes, Mr. Hughes. Let yes, me prepare the next airplane for you. Right? And you know, airplanes were not, they weren't <laughs> safe back then. Not like airplanes now are like, I mean, you're still flying through the air. <laughs> I mean, was he building, was he like building his own? Were these like somebody was, made them and he bought it and then was flying it around? He was designing them. Okay. Um, he was he was flying both, like this one it seems like was an Army Air Force recon okay. aircraft. So it's, it, I don't think this was one of his aircrafts. <laughs> but he was probably flying it too fast because that's the Army what was he like, is. this one didn't work. Yeah. Next. <laughs> Check. Um, so apparently an oft-told story says that Hughes sent a check to the Marine Weekly for the remainder of his life as a sign of gratitude. Well, that's nice. However, Durkin's oh. daughter denied knowing that he received any money <laughs> from the rescue of Hughes. So. Or he was a jerk or didn't he, want to give it to you. Exactly. Yeah. He was like, I don't have any money. He didn't Will give me it? any money. So despite his physical injuries, Hughes was proud that his mind was still working. As he lay in his hospital bed, he decided he did not like the bed's design. He called in plant engineers to design a customized bed equipped with hot and cold running water, built in six sections, and operated by 30 electric motors with push-button adjustments. Hmm. The hospital bed was designed by Hughes specifically to alleviate the pain caused by moving with severe burn injuries. Uh, although he never used the bed that he designed, Hughes's bed served as a prototype for the modern hospital bed. Oh, interesting. Hughes's doctors considered his recovery almost miraculous. Hughes, however, believed that neither miracle nor modern medicine contributed to his recovery, instead asserting the natural life-giving properties of fresh-squeezed orange juice were responsible. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> oh, hell oh, yeah. So my heart may be on the wrong side of my body now, but... I got that pulp. Orange juice. <laughs> Get it. Orange juice miracle drug um he many attribute his long-term dependence on opiates to his use of codeine as a painkiller during his convalescence uh the trademark mustache he wore afterwards was used to hide a scar on his upper lip resulting from the accident okay so spruce goose here we go Mm -hmm. so the war production board not the military Mm -hmm. originally contracted with henry kaiser who was the american industrialist and father of modern american shipbuilding and hughes to produce the gigantic HK-1 Hercules flying boat for Whoa. use during World War II. A flying boat? It was a flying boat. <gasps> so it was used to transport troops and equipment across the Atlantic as an alternative to seagoing troop transport ships that were vulnerable to German U-boats. Okay. So it could fly, it's, it could fly as an amphibious. Mm-hmm. So it could fly and take off and land in water. Okay. Uh, the project was opposed by the military services thinking that it would siphon resources from higher priority programs because, you know, there's a war on. <laughs> uh, but there, it was advocated by Hughes's powerful allies in Washington, D.C. It was probably Howard Hughes was like, I got to get, I got to make this big right. ass ship boat. Mm-hmm. Ship boat. Ship plane. Plane. Plane boat. Boat plane. Flat. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they were like, no. And then he's like, no, I'm going to call in a favor. So that's what happened. So the HK-1 aircraft contract was issued in 1942 as a development contract and called for three aircraft to be constructed in two years for the war effort. So the aircraft was designed to carry 150,000 pounds, 750 fully equipped troops, or two 30-ton M4 Sherman tanks. This seems ambitious. It was extraordinarily <laughs> ambitious until... You, wait till you hear what it had, what it was made out of. After disputes... <laughs> After disputes, because Hughes seemed like he was very difficult to work with. Mm-hmm. I mean, by this time, and I'll talk more about it later, he was starting to exhibit that trademark insanity Twitchiness. that 
<laughs> we all know and love about our dear Mr. Mm-hmm, Hughes. Mm-hmm. So he was difficult to work with. Finally, Kaiser was like, you do it. I'm tired of this. So Hughes elected to continue it as the H4 Hercules. Okay. So wartime priorities meant the aircraft could not be made of strategic materials. Sure. So like aluminum or steel. Mm-hmm. So it was made from wood. Birch, to be exact. Its elevators and rudders were fabric covered. Ooh. So it was all wood, baby. Like wow. all wood. And then some of them were like, okay, well, we need some extra stuff. So, yeah. so some linen, I guess. Uh, the Hercules was the world's largest flying boat, the largest aircraft made from wood, and at 319 feet 11 inches, had the longest wingspan of any aircraft. Wow. Yeah. The The next largest wingspan was about 310 feet. That's like football field. Yeah, it is a football field long. Yep. Uh, the Hercules is no longer the longest or heaviest aircraft ever built. Both of those titles are currently held by the Antonov AN-225 Mria, which I think is a Russian ship. <laughs> Uh, the final design chosen was a behemoth, eclipsing any large transport then built. It was nicknamed the Spruce Goose um, or the Flying y- Lumberyard by the press. But it was made by Birch. But it was made Spruce. of Birch. And Hughes hated the name Spruce Goose. Hated it. He was like, um, guys, it's actually made of Birch. <laughs> so you're not even right. I imagine now he's like a teenage girl. Okay. <laughs> um, so he built this giant thing and the government was like, Oh my God, how oh. this is so like, you're wasting our money. Mm-hmm. So he was called to testify before the Senate war investigating <laughs> committee in 1947 over the use of government funds for the aircraft. Oh, he didn't get it done in time. Oh, of course not. He finished it like long after the war was over. Okay. Um, so during a Senate hearing on August 6, 1947, the first of a series of appearances, Hughes said, quote, the Hercules was a monumental undertaking. It is the largest aircraft ever built. It is over five stories tall with a wingspan longer than a football field. That's more than a city block. Now, I put the sweat of my life into this thing. I have my reputation all rolled up in it, and I've stated several times that if it's a failure, I'll probably leave this country and never come back. And I mean so it. So there. So there. I'm taking my bong, going home. I'm taking my giant plane <laughs> boat and going somewhere else. Uh, so in all, development costs for the plane reached $23 million, which is equivalent to more than $283 million today. Oh, my gosh. So, well, at least he didn't waste any metal. <laughs> he didn't waste any metal. It was all, it was all birch. So <laughs> they were like, you need this thing. You got to show us that it works. Right. Or else we're going to need our money back. Mm-hmm. So he returned to California during a break in the Senate hearings to run taxi tests on the H-4. On November 2nd, 1947, the taxi test began with Hughes at the controls, so he decided to fly it. His crew included a co-pilot, two flight engineers, 16 mechanics, and two other flight crew. Uh, The Hercules also carried seven invited guests from the press corps and an additional seven industry representatives, and 36 people were on board this gigantic, like, beast of a plane. After picking up speed on the channel-facing Cabrillo Beach, the Hercules lifted off, remaining airborne for 26 seconds at 70 feet off the water at a speed of 135 miles an hour for about one mile. Whoa. The brief flight proved to detractors that Hughes' now unneeded masterpiece was flightworthy, thus vindicating the use of government funds. <laughs> the Spruce Goose, however, never flew again. Its Ugh. lifting capacity and ceiling were never tested, and a full-time crew of 300 workers, all sworn to secrecy, maintained the aircraft in flying condition in a climate-controlled hangar. <laughs> the company reduced the crew to 50 workers in 1962 and then disbanded it after Hughes' death in 1976. It currently resides in the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum in McMinnville, Oregon. Oh, sweet. So you can go see it. So you can go see it. It's massive. It's huge. It's huge. 
like the the Wikipedia page for it has a little um, graphic uh-huh. of like the four biggest planes ever created, mm-hmm. and they are like <laughs> within several feet of each other. It's crazy. And this thing was built in the forties, and of it, course never flew. Was it like natural wood, or did they paint it, or did um, they stain it? Or? It does look silver, so okay. I think they painted it wow. silver. Um, and apparently, like to get the curves and everything, mm-hmm. they had like hundreds of these young women who would like iron it because <gasps> wow. it was thin you know it was like thin paneled mm-hmm. wood they would iron it so that it would, could get that like curve <gasps> before they sent it off to get it manufactured it's so crazy so the spruce goose was a joke because it was a joke like it was a giant plane that just didn't work now i want to tell you how i first heard of this oh spruce tell goose. me please um on the disney show tailspin mm. they had an episode where somebody had the spruce moose oh, okay. which was a six engine seaplane that never was able to fly after being flown i mean was never able to fly after being built and for the longest time uh-huh. i well like because you know then i asked my dad i was like oh isn't this funny and then he told me about the spruce goose oh i see. but i confused the name and i thought it was the spruce moose like <laughs> For a very long, like for longer than I should have well, thought that, that that Howard Hughes had the spruce moose. It's certainly not. I mean, it's either the spruce goose or the spruce moose. Like it's not, it's not like people are going to be like, oh, Julia, you're so dumb for thinking it was the spruce moose. Did you ever watch Tailspin? I did watch Tailspin. Oh, I loved I loved it. Tailspin. I, loved I could Tailspin. not tell you any plot points. Oh, of course not. Of course not. But, uh, but yeah, it was a great show. But the I loved spruce it. moose was hijacked by Owl Capone. Oh, Come that's on. So good. They that's were, very good. They had some really smart writers. They did have some good writers. Yeah. I mean, they were probably all like out of work comedians. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, in 1953, Hughes launched the Howard Hughes Medical Institute in Miami, Florida. It's currently located in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Um, <laughs> it has the express goal of basic biomedical research, including trying to understand, in Hughes's words, the genesis of life itself due to his lifelong interest in science and technology. Um, after his death in 1976, many thought that the balance of Hughes's estate would go to the Institute, although it was ultimately divided amongst his cousins and other heirs, given the lack of a will to the contrary. Mm-hmm. He died in testate, which I will talk about in a moment. Uh, the HHMI was the fo- fourth largest private organization as of 2007, and the largest devoted to biological and medical research with an endowment of $16.3 billion Whoa. as of June 2007. Well, that's cool. Yeah, it's really great. And I had never heard of it. Like usually yeah. you hear, if something has that big of an endowment, Somebody like you've heard name. about it sometime. Mm-hmm. But okay. On January 12, 1957, Hughes married actress Jean Peters. Uh, the so couple- many Jeans back then. Oh, Jeans It's hard to marries- keep track of them. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, there were only like six names that you got to choose from. <laughs> Maybe like 12 if you were a Catholic family. But yes. other than that, like, yeah. yeah, you didn't have a lot. Um, the couple met in the 1940s before Peters became a film actress, and they had a highly publicized romance in 1947. There was talk of marriage, but she said she could not combine it with her career. Some later claimed that Peters was the only woman Hughes ever loved, mm. and he reportedly had his security officers follow her everywhere, even when they were not in a relationship. Hmm. Such reports were confirmed by actor Max Showalter, who became a close friend of Peters while shooting Niagara. Showalter told in an interview that because he frequently met with Peters, Hughes's men threatened to ruin his career if he did not leave her alone. So. Oh, man. Yeah. Hughes, if I can't have her. If I can't can. have her, I'm going to make my guys follow her around, <laughs> which is very healthy. Um, 
Hughes was, shall we say, eccentric. Yes. And suffered from severe obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, close friends of Hughes reported that he was obsessed with the size of peas, which was one of his favorite foods, which just, I mean, <laughs> you have to be crazy to love peas. <laughs> no, mental he illness eats is, them is one a, is a at a time. One at a time. Uh, he used a special fork to sort them by size. God bless him. <laughs> Uh, and I mentioned this before, but I'm going to say it again. Mm. In 1958, Hughes told his aides that he wanted to screen some movies at a film studio near his home. He stayed in the studio's darkened screening room for more than four months, never leaving. He ate only chocolate bars and chicken and drank only milk and was surrounded by dozens of Kleenex boxes that he continuously stacked and rearranged. He wrote detailed memos to his aides, giving them explicit instructions neither to look at him nor speak to him unless spoken to. Throughout this period, Hughes sat fixated in his chair, often naked, continually watching movies. When he finally emerged in the summer of 1958, his hygiene was terrible. He had neither bathed nor cut his hair and nails for weeks. And this may have been due to allodynia, which results in a pain response to stimuli that would normally not cause pain. Ugh. So that's like I mentioned in the previous episode, mm-hmm. like you can't, th- that was the reason why he was naked. Right. It's because even like clothes on his body caused him such pain. Ugh. And, you know, cutting your hair or nails, like you have that perceived idea of like, <gasps> is like so much pain. Oh, no. Don't look at me. <laughs> your eyeballs are burning into my skull. <laughs> Uh, after the screaming room incident, uh, Hughes moved into a bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel, where he also rented rooms for his aides, his wife, and numerous girlfriends. He would sit naked in a bedroom with a pink hotel napkin placed over his genitals, watching movies. This may have been because Hughes found the touch of clothing painful due to allodynia, mm-hmm. as I mentioned before. He may have watched movies to distract himself from his pain, which is a common practice among patients with intractable pain, especially those who do not receive adequate treatment, which he okay. obviously did not. Uh, in one year, Hughes spent an estimated $11 million at the hotel. You mean the orange juice didn't cure him? The orange juice didn't do a single goddamn thing. Ugh. Yeah, it's really, it's a shame. He really abandoned that orange juice at the end. Uh, <laughs> you forgot. Um, he also began purchasing all restaurant chains and four-star hotels that had been founded within the state of Texas. Uh, this included, if only for a short Uh-oh. period, many unknown franchises currently out of business. He okay. just became obsessed with like, I got to buy everything founded in Texas. <laughs> Uh, he placed ownership of the restaurants with the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and all licenses were resold shortly after. Another time he became obsessed with the 1968 film Ice Station Zebra and had it run on a continuous loop in his home. According to his aides, he watched it 150 times. Uh, Hughes insisted on using tissues to pick up objects to insulate himself from germs. He would also notice dust, stains, or other imperfections on people's clothes and demand that they take care of them. Oh my gosh. Once one of the most visible men in America, Hughes ultimately vanished from public view, although tabloids continued to follow rumors of his behavior and whereabouts. I mean, mm-hmm. this is Obviously. the juiciest. Yeah. He was reported to be terminally ill, mentally unstable, or even dead. Injuries from numerous aircraft crashes caused Hughes to spend much of his later life in pain, and he eventually became addicted to codeine, which he injected intramuscularly. Yeah. Hughes had his hair cut and nails trimmed only once a year, likely due to the pain caused by, and this is called RSD-CRPS, which is Reflex Sympathetic Dystrophy or Complex Regional Pain Syndrome, which is wow. from the um, airplane crashes. So he just has like Fabio hair. He just got he long, has, like, long hair, long ass nails, mm-hmm. just He's picking things up with tissues. Yep. He's just naked. naked. It's awful. <laughs> oh, and he also stored his urine in bottles. That's what my thing says. <laughs> Yeah, you know what? It's weird. Um, apparently, that's a symptom of of like obsessive compulsive disorder. Is like 
saving things that come off of your body. So like fingernail clippings or your hair, spit, urine, other things we won't get into. I know you're horrified. I know you're horrified. Um, The wealthy and aging Hughes, accompanied by his entourage of personal aides, began moving from one hotel to the other, always taking up residence in the top floor penthouse. In the last 10 years of his life, 1966 to 1976, Hughes lived in hotels in many cities, including Beverly Hills, Boston, Las Vegas, Nassau, Freeport, Vancouver, London, Managua, and Acapulco. On November 24th, 1966, which was Thanksgiving Day, Hughes arrived in Las Vegas by railroad car and moved into the Desert Inn. Because he refused to leave the hotel and to avoid further conflicts with the owners, Hughes bought the Desert Inn in early 1967. (laughs) They were like, sir, we're going to need you to leave. He was like, nope, and I just bought you. Uh, the hotel's eighth floor became the nerve center of Hughes's empire, and the ninth floor penthouse became his personal residence. Between 1966 and 1968, he bought several other hotel casinos, including the Castaways, New Frontier, the Landmark Hotel and Casino, and the Sands. Oh, wow. Uh, he bought the small Silver Slipper Casino for the sole purpose of moving its trademark neon Silver Slipper visible from his bedroom, as it had apparently kept him awake at night. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's when you're like, you have too much money. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, after Hughes left the desert Inn, hotel employees discovered that his drapes had not been opened during the time he had lived there and had rotted through. Uh, Hughes wanted to change the image of Las Vegas to something more glamorous. As Hughes wrote in a memo to an aide quote, I like to think of Las Vegas in terms of a well-dressed man in a dinner jacket and a beautifully jeweled and furred female getting out of an expensive car. Hughes bought several local television stations, including uh, KLAS-TV, mostly because he liked to watch movies and TV, and Las Vegas didn't have any all-night TV stations at the time. (laughs) So he he, um, bought up a lot of stuff in Las Vegas, Mm -hmm. partially because he could, and because he had his own, like, whims and things. But he also, at the time... Las Vegas was seedy. It wasn't as glamorous. So him buying up all these casinos and, like, investing money and time and... And like uh, plans for them, gave it this like uh, gave it like the of, glamour, yeah. yeah, like the Rat Pack glamour. It's, he was the one who That's kind of interesting. like. I didn't realize that. he was like intertwined with Vegas at all. Yeah, I mean, you know, once you hear about the mm-hmm. urine and bottles mm-hmm. thing, it just kind of kicks everything else yep. out. <laughs> and the Spruce Goose, of course, Spruce Goose. Um, Hughes's considerable business holdings were overseen by a small panel, unofficially dubbed the Mormon Mafia because of the many Latter-day Saints on the committee, led by Frank William Gay. In addition to supervising day-to-day business operations and Hughes's health, they also went to great pains to satisfy Hughes's every whim. Just a bunch mm. of Mormon yes-men. Yeah, sure. For example, Hughes once became fond of Baskin-Robbins's banana nut ice cream, so his aides sought to secure a bulk shipment for him, only to discover that Baskin-Robbins had discontinued the flavor. <laughs> They put in a request for the smallest amount the company could provide for a special order, which was 350 gallons, <laughs> and had it shipped from Los Angeles. A few days after the order arrived, Hughes announced that he was tired of banana nut and wanted only French vanilla ice cream. <laughs> the Desert Inn ended up distributing free banana nut ice cream to casino customers for a year. That's pretty funny. In a 1996 interview, ex-Howard Hughes communicator Robert Mayhew said... There is a rumor that there is still some banana nut ice cream left in the freezer. It is most likely true. Because who likes banana nut? Am I right? Ugh. What a gross flavor. 
Uh, as an owner of several major Las Vegas businesses, Hughes wielded much political and economic influence in Nevada and elsewhere. During the 60s and 70s, he disapproved of underground nuclear testing at the Nevada test site. Hughes was concerned about the risk from residual nuclear radiation and attempted to halt the tests. Okay. All right. When they finally went through despite Hughes' efforts, the detonations were powerful enough that the entire hotel where he was staying trembled due to the shock waves. Ooh. In two separate... Last-ditch maneuvers, Hughes instructed his representatives to offer million-dollar bribes to both presidents Lyndon B. Johnson and Richard Nixon. In 1970, Gene Peters filed for divorce. The two had not lived together for many years, and Peters requested a lifetime alimony payment of $70,000 a year adjusted for inflation and waived all claims to Hughes' estate. That's not too bad. That is reasonable. for him. So Hughes offered her a settlement of over a million dollars, but she was like, no thanks, that's not the same thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Hughes did not insist on a confidentiality agreement from Peters as a condition of the divorce, and aides reported that Hughes never spoke ill of her. She refused to discuss her life with Hughes and declined several lucrative offers from publishers and biographers. Peters would state only that she had not seen Hughes for several years before their divorce and had only dealt with him by phone. Mm. One of that tea. Yeah, everybody wanted that tea, but she didn't have any tea. Like, if anything, it's the aides. Okay. It's all yeah, those guys yeah, yeah, yeah. that were like hanging around him. Uh, Hughes was living in the Intercontinental Hotel near Lake Managua in Nicaragua, seeking privacy and security, but after an earthquake there, he moved back to the States, to Florida. Uh, he subsequently moved into the penthouse at the Xanadu Princess Resort on Grand Bahama Island, which he had recently purchased. The Xanadu Princess. I know. <laughs> I imagine he didn't name it. Uh, he lived almost exclusively in the penthouse of the Xanadu Beach Resort and Marina for the last four years of his life, and he had spent a total of $300 million on his many properties in Las Vegas. <laughs> So in 1972, Clifford Irving caused a media sensation when he claimed he had co-written an authorized autobiography of Hughes. Okay. Hughes was so reclusive that he did not immediately publicly refute Irving's statement, leading many to believe that the Irving book was genuine. Okay. So, however, before the book's publication, Hughes finally denounced Irving in a teleconference and the entire project was eventually exposed as a hoax. So this was like after probably more than a decade. Yeah. No one had ever heard from Hughes. And this was the one thing that like brought him out of the woodwork where he was like, okay, I'm getting on the phone with a bunch of newspapers. Uh, Irving was later convicted of fraud and spent 17 months in prison. Oof. uh, In 1970. Huh? Really? Yeah, I know. Well, you know, his Howard Hughes, he probably sued the pants off of everybody. In 1974, the Orson Welles film F for Fake includes a section on the Hughes biography hoax. And in 1977, the hoax by Clifford Irving was published in the United Kingdom telling his story of these events. Wow. Uh, The 2006 film The Hoax, starring Richard Gere, is also based on this. Oh, interesting. So, Hughes was reported to have died on April 5th, 1976, at 1.27 p.m. on board an aircraft. He was en route from his penthouse at the Acapulco Fairmount Princess Hotel in Mexico to the Methodist Hospital in Houston. Other accounts indicate that he had died on the flight from Freeport, Grand Bahama, to Houston. After receiving a call, his senior counsel, Frank P. Morse, ordered his staff to get his body on a plane and return him to the United States. His reclusiveness and possible drug use made him practically unrecognizable. His hair, beard, fingernails, and toenails were long, and his tall six-foot-four-inch frame now weighed barely 90 pounds. Oh, my gosh. And the FBI had to use fingerprints to conclusively (gasps) identify the body. That's how bad it was. A subsequent autopsy recorded kidney failure as the cause of death. Hughes was in extremely poor physical condition at the time of his death. He suffered from malnutrition. While his kidneys were damaged, his other internal organs, including his brain, were deemed perfectly healthy. Now, Mm. Eh. was his brain healthy? (laughs) Like, to look at it, sure. It's gray and slimy. (laughs) It looks great. There's no rots, nothing. But 
you know, what's perfectly healthy when it comes to the brain. Um, X-rays revealed five broken off hypodermic needles in the flesh of his <gasps> arms. Ugh. So to inject codeine into his muscles, Hughes had used glass syringes Ugh. with metal needles that easily became detached. <laughs> it's so awful. Uh, Howard Hughes is buried next to his parents at Glenwood Cemetery in Houston. Wow. And that is the truncated story oh of Howard Hughes. Oh my gosh. It's, it's actually, it's sad. Yeah. Because he clearly was a brilliant person mm-hmm. um, who was uh, believed very strongly in his own mind. Yeah. And when it slipped away from him, he uh, didn't want any help. Yeah. Because he never asked for help before. So why would he ask for help? So he was like, this is how I live now. I just don't cut my hair. Whatever, man. And isn't the film The Aviator? The Aviator is about Mm -hmm. Howard Hughes. But I guess I didn't see it. Mm -hmm. But I guess uh, it's only up until after he flies the Spruce Goose. I don't think it's like the entire story of Howard Hughes. Because I don't think we see any pictures of Leonardo DiCaprio all like fraggly and scraggly. (laughs) Although what a... Eight inch fingernails. Yeah. (laughs) What a what a great... It's actually with the Revenant. The Revenant. Oh, they could have just doubled up his, uh, his costume for that. Yeah, The Revenant is actually the sequel to The Aviator. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, so I have to give credit oh to my gosh. the name of my quiz okay. to Steve. Okay. Because I was talking to him. I was like, oh, I'm going to do Howard Hughes. I mm-hmm. just don't know what my quiz is going to be. And he paused for like 10 seconds. And then he goes, how about you do Howard's and Hughes, a quiz on famous Howard's and colors. And then he <laughs> laughed and laughed. Oh, he laughed so much. Uh, so great. thanks to Steve. This is... My quiz on Your famous husband. Howards. Yes, my my husband. Howards and Hughes. Question number one. Archaeologist Howard Carter had the find of his career in 1922 while in a dig in the desert with benefactor Lord Carnarvon. When he finally opened the cache, Carnarvon asked, Can you see anything? And Carter famously replied, Yes, wonderful things. This discovery later created a craze amongst the fashionable in Europe and the U.S. What was it that he discovered? Question number two. Which came first when it comes to orange? The color name or the fruit name? Question number three. This verbose guy was friends with Muhammad Ali and famously repeated, down goes Frazier during the Build Sunshine Showdown in the boxing match between Joe Frazier and George Foreman. Name him. Question number four. The CMYK color model is a subtractive color model used in color printing and refers to the four inks used. Can you name these four colors? Question number five. Australian pharmacologist Howard Florey won the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine in 1945, along with Alexander Fleming, for his role in the making of what bacteria killer that saved over 82 million lives? Question number six. Puce is a color first dubbed in 1778 and was a very popular color to wear amongst the fashionable in 19th century France. Is puce a reddish purple brown color or a dark olive yellow? Question number seven. Which author and historian was probably still called last, even though he wrote one of the most comprehensive books on American history, appropriately titled A People's History of the United States? Question number eight. The color celadon is a gorgeous pale sea green color, but its name doesn't really describe it. Did the word celadon come from A, its chemical makeup, B, the mineral that shares its color, or C, a character in a French novel? Question number nine. 
The famously germaphobic Howie Mandel created this TV show after choking on a piece of cake, giving him the infamous voice of the titular character. What was this 90s kids TV show? And finally, question number 10. You know I couldn't help myself. I'm going to name five things, and you're going to tell me if it's a drag queen or an official Crayola crayon color. First, Big Dip a Ruby. Second, Eggs Benedict. Third, Mango Tango. Fourth, Meatball. Fifth, Jazzberry Jam. We'll give you a minute to think about it, and I'll be right back with answers. Meatball. <laughs> Meatball. Mr. Hughes, how are you? I know it's been a while, but I've been dying trying to catch your brilliant smile. People like us, we are always misunderstood. Lovers All right, here we go. Let's do it. Let's do it. Question numero un. Archaeologist Howard Carter had the find of his career in 1922 while in a dig in the desert with benefact Lord Carnarvon. When he finally opened the cache, Carnarvon asked, can you see anything? And Carter famously replied, yes, wonderful things. This discovery later created a craze amongst the fashionable in Europe and the U.S. What was it that he discovered? King Tut's Tomb. King Tut's Tomb. American Egyptomania was sparked when Carter toured the U.S., giving illustrated lectures during the 1930s. He was not cursed by King Tut, <laughs> instead dying unmysteriously of Hodgkin's disease in 1939. Mm. Lord Carnarvon, though, did die suddenly during the dig of blood poisoning in 1923. Okay, question Oops. number two. Which came first when it comes to orange, the color name or the fruit name? <sighs> I... Ah, uh, the fruit, the fruit name. The fruit, yes. According to studies, the word orange appears in the English language as early as the 13th century, referring to the fruit. Mm, great. The color orange was initially called juleried, which <gasps> is spelled... That's beautiful. I know, right? And it's even prettier. It's Old English. It's spelled G-E-O-L-U-H-R-E-A-D. Oh, juleried, uh, which means yellow-red. On a related note, it is widely accepted that there is no single English word that is a true rhyme for orange. Hank Blorange would know. have um, <laughs> some Blorange. bone to pick with you. I was going to say Blorange. <laughs> oh, man. We're on the same wavelength. All right. I saw you struggling with this one. Question number three. This verbose guy was friends with Muhammad Ali and famously repeated, down goes Frazier during the Build Sunshine Showdown in the boxing match between Joe Frazier and George Foreman. Name him. I don't know. It's Howard Cosell. Oh, I wasn't thinking of Howard's. Oh, yeah, they're Howard's. I forgot. It's okay. Forgot it's okay. about I do Howard. that every time when yep. you do a quiz on yep. like famous Marys. I'm like, Sarah, oh, <laughs> Lacey, I don't remember. Um, he was quoted Howard as saying, Cosell. arrogant, pompous, obnoxious, vain, cruel, verbose, a show off. I have been called all of these. Of course, I am. <laughs> Question number four. 
The CMYK color model is a subtractive color model used in color printing and refers to the four inks used. Can you name these four colors? Cyan, magenta, yellow, black. Perfect. The CMYK model works by partially or entirely masking colors on a lighter, usually white background. The ink reduces the light that would otherwise be reflected. Such a model is called subtractive because inks subtract the colors red, green, and blue from white light. White light minus red leaves cyan. White light minus green leaves magenta. And white light minus blue leaves yellow. Amazing. Very cool. Question number five. Australian pharmacologist Howard Florey won the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine in 1945 along with Alexander Fleming for his role in making of what bacteria killer that saved over 82 million lives? Is it penicillin? It is penicillin. He discovered it accidentally in 1928 as mold in his Petri dish, which he left unwashed during a vacation. (laughs) So, oh crap. Being gross saved a lot of people. (laughs) Remember that. Remember that. Don't wash your dishes, folks. Uh, No, please do that. That's one of my pet peeves. Question number six. (laughs) Puce is a color first dubbed in 1778 and was a very popular color to wear amongst the fashionable in 19th century France. Is puce a reddish purple brown color? or a dark olive yellow. It is reddish brown. It is reddish purple brown. Puce comes from the French for flea and is said to be the color of blood stains on linen or bedsheets, even after being laundered from a flea's droppings or after a flea has been crushed. The word puce is also thumb. Okay. So if you think about crushing a flea with your thumb. <laughs> puce, puce. Puce, puce. Puce, puce. Question number seven. Which author and historian was probably still called last, even though he wrote one of the most comprehensive books on American history, appropriately titled A People's History of the United States? Is it Howard Zinn? It is Howard Zinn. Thanks for that hint. No problem. Uh, He also wrote several plays and taught political science and civil liberties at Boston University. He died in 2010. Uh, question number eight, the color celadon is a gorgeous pale sea green color, but the name doesn't really describe it. Did the word celadon come from its chemical makeup, the mineral that shares its color, or a character in a French novel? Uh, you didn't say um, a city in a Pokemon game. Nope. But uh, <laughs> Oh, apparently it's a city in a Pokemon game celadon called city. Celadon City. Uh, I should have looked that up, I guess. I'm going to go with a mineral. It is actually a character in a French novel. Oh, mon dieu. Uh, Celadon was the name of a character who wore green clothes in Honoré du Fays, 17th century novel, L'Astrie. L'Astrie? L'Astrie. How's that spelled? L apostrophe A-S-T-R-E-E. L'Astrie. Hmm. I got it right. I don't know what that I means. I looked up the... I know. I didn't know. You know what? <laughs> Google didn't either. Google didn't either. It was like the Astrie. <laughs> Question number nine. The famously germaphobic Howie Mandel created this TV show when choking on a piece of cake, giving him the infamous voice of its titular character. What was this 90, 90s kids TV show? Oh, don't you know? Oh, don't you know? That's going to be Bobby's That's world. Bobby's world. Do you remember his full name? That's extra points. We'll just go Bobby. What's his last name? <sighs> okay. His sister was, his brother was Derek. Yeah. And his sister was like Kelly? So probably. I mean, it's 90s. Uh-huh. Uh, Do you want me to tell you? I can't remember. It's Bobby Generic. Bobby Generic! Motherfucker, I knew that. <laughs> it's Generic. It's Generic. It's actually spelled generic, but it's pronounced generic because <laughs> it's elevated. <laughs> Ugh. I know. I'm sorry. I'm so mad at myself. <laughs> I don't deserve to have a trip. No, don't say that. Don't say that. I could not think of Ugh. Sarah. Mc- I couldn't think of Sarah McLaughlin the Sarah other day. 
so mad at that. You know how much screaming I did in that episode? A lot. I apologize to everybody. I screamed a lot in that episode. Okay. Question number 10. You know I couldn't help myself. Mm-hmm. I'm going to name five things, and you're going to tell me if it's a drag queen or an official Crayola crayon color. Okay. Big dip a ruby. Big dip-a? Big, big dip o ruby. Big dip o ruby. Yes. Drag queen. It is a metallic crayon. It is big a crayon. Big dip o ruby. Big dip a ruby. <laughs> that's why I picked it, because I was like, that's a drag queen color. <laughs> Okay, number two, Eggs Benedict. Crayon. That is a drag queen. Come on. <laughs> I know, I'm so sorry. What is, what's She's her outfit like? Um, I think it's just like, she loves brunch. I think that's just <laughs> it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> number three, Mango Tango. That's a crayon. That is a crayon. You are correct. Number four, Meatball. That's a drag queen. That is a drag queen named Meatball. And finally, fifth, Jazzberry Jam. That's a crayon. That is a crayon. You did good. You got three out of five. Um, the other thing I wanted to add, add was this. I couldn't turn into a question because it was like too complicated. But there is a term for the color that you see when you suddenly like turn off the lights in a dark room. Okay. It's that dark gray. It's not black. Okay. That your eyeballs are like trying to adjust to the All light right. and everything. It's called Eigengrau. 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 Is that what Alex's cat is named after? No, I think, well, I don't know if I, no, Eigen is a physicist or something. Oh, okay. Um, sorry, Alex. Sorry. Physicist? <laughs> Probably a physicist. But hey, Eigengrau. Thanks means, for listening. But apparently Eigengrau means like gray light or like little oh, gray light. okay. And apparently what it is is um, it's actually tiny white and black dots of like light and dark in your, in your rods and cones. It's your eyeballs like trying to adjust to the oh, darkness. Oh boy. So that's what that gray is called. Eigengrau. Interesting. Isn't that cool? I didn't cool? know that it had its own name. Yeah. Eigengrau. Eigengrau. And it's actually like, um, they like, I don't know. Wikipedia has all this stuff on colors. Look up colors on Wikipedia. It's so cool. They have like the hue percentage and like how much red, green and blue is in it. Like it's really cool. So, um, and that it, I mean, quiz. if you're trapped in a theater for four months, that's the yeah, perfect amount of reading. All sorts of, <laughs> yeah, that's all you can do. So that was my uh, topic on Sir Howard Hughes and colors. Oh and my gosh. Howard. Thank you, Lauren. Oh, we all learned you. so much. Um, we wanted to do a special, a special mini shout out session yes. here. Um, at Lauren's wedding, we met a lot of people that knew me because they heard my voice before, which was really funny. I was like, where's your friend, Julia? We love your podcast. I want to meet oh, her. Oh, you look nice, but I'd like to meet your friend. Yeah. They were like, I want to meet Julia. Um, yeah. So a shout out to Laura and Alex. <laughs> hey. Hey, Laura Thanks and Alex. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Thanks um, guys. Yeah. That was really we love fun you. to chat with them. Um, we also got a really great email from Megs B. Um, she, <laughs> I just want to share this. It's such a good funny. email. Oh my God. She said, the question I used to have the easiest time answering was, which se- which sense would you prefer to lose? It was always hearing because I have to be able to read and I love food a lot. But now I had to choose smell because a world without misinformation is a world I don't want to be a part of. Thank you very much. That, that was, was like so kind. Probably the nicest thing anybody's ever that's said to nice, us. Honestly, that's the nicest thing anyone's yeah. ever said to us. Thank you so much, Megs. <laughs> that was such a beautifully like concise and beautifully written email. And Julia wrote you back. Beautifully was like... I we are beyond honored that you would give up your sense of smell for us. 
so yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much to Megs. Thank you yes. so much to all yes. of our listeners. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. Uh, we have a Facebook page, Misinformation, a trivia podcast. We have a Twitter at misinfopod. Um, and our website is www.misinfopod.com. And uh, from that aforementioned website, you can stream us. You can also get us on uh, iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or use our RSS feed uh, to get any podcast app, any Use our RSS yeah, feed for any it. podcast app that you prefer. Yeah, that's what and I'm trying to say in this please, situation. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Please do tell a friend. Appreciate it. And uh, thanks so much for listening, guys. Uh, yeah, make sure you voted today. Yes, please vote. We'll get you next time. <laughs> Bye. Bye.